LifeWay Research did a study in 2019, and they surveyed young adults ages uh, 23 to 30 who attended a Protestant church, so it would be a church like ours, uh, regularly. And what regularly means is at least two times a month. And that they would do this for at least one year in high school. They asked the young adults one very important question. I mean, they asked him a bunch, I think, but there was one very important one. It was how many, or, or rather, if they stopped attending church after, or regularly during the ages of 18 to 22. So basically, while they were in college, they stopped attending church at least two times a month. And the response to that is that two-thirds of them said yes. Two-thirds stopped attending church during that time frame. Two-thirds of young adults quit going to church. And the top reason, what 34% of them said why they quit, was that they went to college and then basically just stopped attending church. And I'll be perfectly honest, like this stat really doesn't surprise me. I've been in ministry now for uh, quite a number of years, in youth ministry in particular, and I've seen this stat or some version of it since I've started. And, and not only that, unfortunately, you know, I've seen this happen in our church in Maple Grove. You know, maybe it's not two-thirds, but there is a non-zero number where a student who graduated and attended Maple Grove stopped attending any church after they uh, left and went to college. And, and I've, I've personally got experience with this because this is what I did. I, I did it in my own life where I walked away from the church my faith in God while I was in college. And, and for me, part of the reason that this happened was that I didn't have a real strong foundation for my faith or my walk with Jesus. It, it was something that we did while growing up, like we went to church, but you know, as I look back, it wasn't something that I truly bought into when I was younger. And then when I went to college, and I heard differing viewpoints, opposing viewpoints, I started to think differently myself about how the world worked, and, and I didn't have a real strong faith to look to or to fall back on, and eventually I walked away and, and said I was an atheist. Now, thankfully, through some amazing, amazing work by God in my life, as well as some consistent prayer from people who love me, I didn't stay that way. Hopefully that's obvious, but since I'm up here, now I'm here now, though. And, and this is the sixth time that I've been able to preach this message, a graduation Sunday message. And it is absolutely one of my favorite messages I get to preach throughout the year. It, and I love it because I get to preach to my students who I have seen grow up in this church. Whether it's been in the youth group or my Sunday school class when we had that, or even just here on Sunday mornings being able to preach to them here, or hanging out and doing other things like playing golf or, you know, eating Chick-fil-A every week or going out and hanging out at the fair. You know, it's been a privilege to be a part of their lives. One of the assignments during my last semester had us look at the mission for our ministries. Like, why do we do what we do? That's not really a question that I'd given a whole lot of thought to, particularly the why. Why do I do what I do? So what I needed to do is I needed to step back and, and look at 
why do I personally take the approach that I take when it comes to ministry? Why do I do the youth ministry the way that I do the youth ministry? And here's how I answer that question. My desire is for these kids to have a solid foundation in their faith in Christ so that they will be able to enter into whatever the next chapter is in their lives, with, whether it be in college or the workplace, with that strong foundation. I didn't have that when I was growing up, and that saw me leave my faith behind for years. I want to help students with building their faith on a strong foundation based on Jesus' teachings from Scripture and to understand that it is a reasonable and a powerful faith. Most importantly, I want them to own their faith, to not rely on their parents or their youth pastor's faith. They need to own it. Because that's going to be what helps them in the future. My hope is that I can be someone who God will use in this short window of their lives to help them grow their faith as well as to train others. Whether it be my volunteers or the parents who are able to do the same. My goal is to train these kids to have a solid foundation for their faith as they move on to the next phase of their lives. But it's not something that I can do, or even my student ministry volunteers. We can't do this on our own. We have these kids, if they just come to Sunday morning church, we have them for an hour here. An hour where they come worship God and his church, or with his church, and hear the proclamation of the word through our singing and preaching. But it's just an hour a week. Or if they come to youth group, which, which we have a few that do that, just come to youth group. You know, we pretty much do the same thing, where we worship God through singing in a biblical lesson, but we add some games and small group conversations as well. And that's only an hour and a half a week. And if they come to both, that's two and a half hours a week. Who said pastors couldn't do math? It was me, like a, five minutes ago to Cole. But... Even still, like two and a half hours a week out of 168 in a week. Like, that's not a lot of time. And so we can't really do the heavy lifting on this. We can help, we can lead, we can teach, but it's a limited amount of time that we have. And that's when it comes down to the parents. We all have access, or we, we have access to this two and a half hours, and then you've got the rest. So what I would say to you is, is a lot of times, you know, what you make a priority is what they will see, and, and a lot of times will be a priority for your kids. If you place your relationship with God above everything else, they're going to see that. If you are continually in prayer, that will make a difference. They will see that. It, it, it may not always seem like it. It may take time. It, it may take a lot of effort. And, and sometimes things aren't going to go the best and they may walk away, but, but I would also encourage you never to stop. Never stop praying for your kids like you could. Never stop modeling your faith. Make it a priority. Make God number one in your life. And maybe, maybe what will happen is they fall away for a few years, but maybe they'll be like me and, and they'll see what God is doing in your life. They'll see how God is changing you for the better. I mean, that's what happened with me. Like, I saw what God had done in my family, um, and, and, and it drew me back. The, the importance you place on being with him and worshiping with his church, they're going to see all of this. And, and, and by God's grace, I, many will come back. 
That's why I do what I do. So the students that come through our student ministry will know that this is a reasonable, credible, powerful faith. That it makes sense. But my biggest hope is that they have a solid foundation that as they leave here. It's not going to be perfect because we're not perfect. But it will be a foundation they can build their faith on. That they can own that faith. And so to the graduates today and all of you who are here listening in, what I, I want to do now is I want to talk to you about something that the Apostle Paul spoke with the church in Rome about. And so if you have your Bibles or you have a Bible app on your phone, you want to turn to it, turn it to uh, the New Testament book of Romans chapter 12 because that's where we're going to be. And we're going to look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And in these first two verses, Paul urges his readers to do something incredibly important. And I'm going to urge you to do the same today. And so let's read these two verses. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's start by looking at just the first verse. And I want to give you also a little background information to this entire book. Paul's writing a letter to the church in Rome, which would have been made up of both Jewish and Gentile or non-Jewish believers. We've got a pretty good idea that this is how he was, or who he was writing to, based on how he was writing. Now, there are various opinions as to why Paul wrote this letter to the church, but one of the more prominent is that he had finished up his missionary journeys in the east, and he's looking to go west. He wants to go out to Spain. And his idea is that he would go and visit the church in Rome and kind of refuel, teach, but also get some support, whether it be through money or prayer from the church in Rome. And this letter is chock full of theology and application for the believer. In our passage today, it kind of marks the turning point from the theological arguments that Paul has been making up to this point to the practical application. He begins with the word therefore, and usually when this word is appearing in Scripture, we want to look back to what was written in the previous section to see the flow of the argument. However, in this particular instance, Paul doesn't simply refer back to the previous statement. He's really referring back to everything that he's been teaching so far in this letter in the previous 11 chapters. And so here's what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now let's stop there. What is God's mercy? Well, simply put, it's the gospel. It's the good news. It's that even though we are sinners and our fate as sinners is death, separated from God because we can't be in the presence of a holy God as sinners, we have been saved by the grace of God through his son Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. This was a plan put in place before even time began. It's God willingly coming to earth as a human to live a perfect life, to show us that he is the way to the Father. Then to die on a cross as the perfect sacrifice to cover and atone for our sins. And, and then even 
defeating death, being resurrected on the third day, and then one day he will return to set things right, to set things the way that God intends them to be. That, that is God's mercy. And so in light of God's mercy, in light of all that he has done for us through his son, in light of the gospel, Paul says to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This language would be familiar to the readers in the first century, as they probably would have some understanding, especially the Jewish readers, of what the sacrificial system would be and sacrifices. And so think about this if we had to still do it today. In order to atone for your sins, you would take an animal, like a lamb, and you would take it to the temple, and you would give it to the priests, and then they would kill the lamb. And they would do like a sacrificial ritual. And then they would take the blood of the lamb and, and do some ritual things with that, and then burn the rest of the animal on the altar. Now, can you imagine doing anything like that? It's hard for us to think about, I think. Unless you work in a slaughterhouse, then maybe it's easy. I don't know. Um, but I grew up in a city, so we didn't have animals. And I'm not taking my dog for sacrifice. That's terrible. Why would anybody bring that up? <laughs> anyway, so Paul's using this to like invoke an image in your mind, right? And he wants his readers to view themselves as a sacrifice. But not, not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. As Paul's talking about offering, he, he's saying, offer your bodies. And he, he's not just wanting you to offer just your bodies. He, will, he doesn't want you to stop there. He wants you to offer everything, to give up everything to God, to offer God their lives. These living sacrifices, they are viewed as holy and pleasing to God. And it reminds me of what is said often in the Old Testament when they would burn the sacrifices. It speaks to that as being, as it says in Numbers 29 and, and, and other places, it says it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The offering of yourself is a living sacrifice. It's holy. It's pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The word spiritual can also be translated, it might be a little bit better translated as reasonable. It is a reasonable act of worship to offer everything over to God because he is the creator of everything. He created you. And so to give it back to him just seems reasonable to me. So it's your reasonable act of worship, and, and I think it is the act of worship. Worship is so much more than just the 30 minutes that we come here on Sunday mornings to sing together. I think that's part of worship. It's absolutely worship when we do that. But it's more than that. Worship is your response to God. It's bowing down before Him. It's being in awe of Him. It's serving Him. It's giving up everything for Him. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice, giving God your life, that is the ultimate act of worship. And it doesn't matter what you do as a job, give that up for the Lord as well. Do it for the Lord. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever it is that you do, we've all got jobs here, and we have some that are looking for jobs. 
whether it's going into vocational ministry or you're going to be a teacher or a nurse or you work in hospitality or you work in computers, whether you stay around here, whether you're called to go to the far side of the earth, it doesn't matter. But how you do it does. You do it to God's glory. You do it as an act of worship. And then Paul gives us a warning. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. This world's constantly trying to get you to fit into its mold. I mean, we all are constantly bombarded with advertisements or messages trying to get us to change you know, our looks, our habits, spend money on the newest and latest things, try to tell you that things that used to be called good or bad and things that used to be called good, uh, bad or good. The world wants you to be constantly connected and influenced by people that you don't even know and put into camps that that need to fight other camps, and, and so much more than that. And Paul just says, don't. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. This world does not have your best interest in mind. Paul doesn't want you to conform to this world because you need to stand out from it. If you conform to it, nobody's going to notice if you're for God because you look just like everybody else. You want to stand out from the world. You don't belong to this world anymore. If you follow Jesus, you belong to him. He paid for you with a price. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You're dead as followers of Jesus. You're dead to this world. But you are alive in Christ. And so set your minds on eternal things, not earthly things. Paul continues in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Put to death the things of this world. And then in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Put to death the things of the world. Put on the things of eternity, of God. Now, how do we do this? We do this on our own? We do this by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, we can reject a lot of the things that the world throws at us on our own, but we can't get it all. And honestly, I mean, has anybody here tried to do it on your own and you just keep falling into the same thing? I have. As one commentator says, this alone is never going to create the kind of image or the kind of change that God has in mind for his followers. Real and lasting change comes from within. We must let ourselves be transformed. 
the word that uh, the word that is translated as transformed here it's the same root word that we use for our word metamorphosis and so like a caterpillar changing into a butterfly we are changed by god our hearts are changed our lives are changed we're no longer these worldly creatures anymore. We are transformed into the likeness of Jesus, being the image of God we were created to be, standing out from this world, being salt and light to this world, focusing on the eternal, not the temporal. As we are then transformed, as we are changed by God, we are able to then test and approve what God's will is. What Paul says is good and pleasing, and perfect. Our graduates are going to go through some big changes in their lives. And so just as Paul said to the church, I say to them, I urge you, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, as your act of worship, your whole self. Don't hold anything back. Don't follow the teaching of this world. Allow God to transform you from the inside out so that you may know his good, pleasing, and perfect will so that you may follow it. And as you do this, continue to follow the greatest commandments which Jesus spoke about in Matthew 22. He says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we follow these two commands, we can't lose. Jesus said the whole law is covered with these commands. And then finally, as we tell each student that we send out every year, remember the command that Jesus gave to his church Because this truly is what it's all about. And if you don't remember, it's on the back of that stone sign that we have at the front of our drive. We call it the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so go, make disciples, and Jesus will always be with you. And may God bless you and be with you as you enter into this next phase of your journey. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for each of our students. We pray for those that were here, those that weren't able to make it, but we pray for all of them that are graduating and moving on to a new journey in their lives. We pray that you would be with them as you promised, and we know that you keep your promises, Lord. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us as a church here at Maple Grove to send these young people out well, to support them when they need supported, how they need supported, to pray for them. And Lord, we, we want to continue to give them that strong foundation of your word and your grace and your mercy and your love that we wouldn't have that two-thirds 
that say that they stop going. That we would flip that on its head and even more. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on them as they go. Be with them, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice for us so that we may sacrifice ourselves for you. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand?